Each Sunday as a kid, my dad and I would go to church, then go get donuts. I've also spent hours riding bikes around New York City in search of the best donut the city has to offer. But when my friend, Sumter Pendergrast, founder of Sidecar Donuts, approached my husband and me with his idea to open a gourmet donut shop in Orange County, we both poo-pooed the idea. Boy, were we wrong. Oftentimes, they'll, they'll direct somebody to do something. It won't get done, and they'll get frustrated. And, you know, they're like, this person's no good. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, do they, did they understand exactly what you really wanted and why? Why you want it that way? And when that gets cleared up, oftentimes people do get on board and will do naturally what you want them to do without having to micromanage them. Welcome to the Mentor DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Mish Pierce. And I welcome you to drop in as I talk to my C-suite friends about what makes them tick, lessons they've learned through their successes and failures, and memories we share through the decades spent growing up in our careers. Mentor DNA is your backstage pass to learning from these inspirational leaders. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sumter Pendergrast. I'm from, really grew up, spent the first 18 years of my life in Atlanta, Georgia, and I moved out to California to go to college. Uh, I wanted, I think that move is somewhat representative of what a personality trait, let's say, that made me start a, a donut shop. And that is just the contrarian side of it. Just every single one of my friends was going to a school within 100 to 200 miles. And uh, I actually... I think I was in 11th grade and was upstairs. We had a TV room upstairs and there was a film that came. I went up there to turn on the TV and there was these guys surfing. They were going around the world surfing in tropical locations. And I was, I was hooked. I was like, <laughs> that is amazing. Sign me I up do for that? some of that. How do I do that? And it was endless summer too. Oh, I'm out. I think it was like 95, 96. And there was something about that lifestyle. I think at the top of my, you know, kind of like value list is freedom is one of them. And I, I think that lifestyle represents a lot of freedom, right? There's this traveling the world on your own clock, surfing all day and doing your own deal. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm, I was like, I got to go to California. I got to learn to surf. Uh, so I moved to California, go to college. And where did you go to school? Did you go to a surf town? Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is, you know, Central Coast, three and a half hours north of LA. You know, there's plenty of surf. And so yeah. I, I just spent my days surfing, trying to get better. And it's one of those sports that's not easy to get better quickly. Yeah. But I put in, you know, put in the time, sacrificed a little bit of school to do it. So, you know, and, and, and that kind of leads me to my mom was an interior designer, so I grew up uh, around art a lot. I've always been somebody who was uh, into art, music, painting, drawing, stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, in school, I actually became a philosophy major. At school, I bought a screen print machine. I worked at a vintage clothing store, which was actually my first real, I guess, job. You know, you do a lot of summer jobs, but I got a job at a um, vintage clothing store in kind of the downtown area. And we went to a lot of um, swap meets, like the Pasadena swap meet. We drive down here and, we, and it was a big time. Everybody was buying like Levi's jeans, red line jeans and all these, it was a big kind of thing. And so uh, 
that was really my first experience in fashion and learning, yeah, having a real kind of job, helping him buy and running kind of a store. But so I brought, bought a screen print machine and started creating art and screen printing it. And I designed uh, boxes and we just, I decided one day to send them to uh, all of the major retailers. Like Urban Outfitters at the time was a huge one. We had Nordstrom's, Bloomingdale's, Fred Siegel was huge in LA. And that kind of kicked off my first entrepreneurial venture. And so was that EFCI? That was. Okay. The lion logo that we still wear those t-shirts. They're yeah. the most comfortable. And those ones that you made for us when we were in Fiji. Yeah. So that was my first real, and, and funny enough, I, in that kind of job, I didn't really have a team. It was me. I had one friend who kind of helped me financially get it off the ground, invest in t-shirts and get them screen printed and send them out. So that was the FCI. And I spent a lot of time in LA driving down, obviously, because all the dye shops and all the stuff were in LA and cut my teeth doing that. Really, that was my first real job. Uh, and that designing was an ex- and growing yeah, and that, that was business. an exciting business because your margins were massive. I remember. I mean, you're selling yes. t-shirts at Fred Siegel for how much? Yeah, what was it? Yeah, seventy-five to hundred bucks, which was big then. You know, now I mean, our t-shirts were three hundred bucks. But at the time, the average t-shirt was probably 20, 15 bucks. I think Ruka had just come online as a surf brand and they were selling a $20 t-shirt and people were like, whoa, right? you know, most surf brands are at 10 bucks, 12 bucks. So this premium kind of idea of uh, premium t-shirts, premium knits, which is sweatshirts kind of, you know, t-shirt stuff was just taking hold and people were we're charging a lot more money. Yeah. So yeah, we'd make a shirt for 10 bucks. There was always a middleman, you know, now it's direct to consumer. That was always the better route. If you could get people to come to your website and make all the margin, but we sold um, to the people like Fred Siegel and we'd mark up double. So we maybe we'd sell them for 30 bucks, 32 bucks. They'd sell them for 70, something like that. Yeah. Not a bad biz, except that in that line of business, you're front loading a ton of dough. Right. Yes. Uh, that ultimately, because, you know, you, it's hard to be, it's hard to bootstrap a clothing business, you know, with 30 grand or something, <laughs> you're competing against war chests of money. And the way that the production works is, is difficult because obviously you make a sample line, which is fairly expensive to tell uh, sewing factory, Hey, make me 10 pieces of X, you know, they charge you you know, 10 X to do that. So you put out all the money there, you send your, you go on the road to sell it, which is obviously you incur tons of costs. Then, then they want to buy it for two or three months down the road. So then you got to go and produce it, then ship it. And then they want terms and then they never pay you on time. So it's probably a 10 month, you know? Yeah. You need a long, you need really deep pockets to be able to do that. Yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are as to how brands even start. Like, how can a young entrepreneur start, or is it different because they have direct-to-consumer platforms now, so you can sell, right? Yeah, I think I like. I have you know Olive's boyfriend, which is my oldest daughter. He wants to do a clothing company, and he's he's going through all. He's talking to me as if I, you know, I'm like, you're me 
20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I think my biggest thing to tell them is you've got to build your own audience and you've got to drive them to your website and be just the biggest frustration there is always dealing with buyers and you're only as good now there, I think there come, there used to be three lines, you know, spring or four spring one each season. Now they've upped it to 10 or something. So you're only as good as your last design and the buyer could tomorrow say, eh, you know what, I'm going to go with this guy over here and you're out, hmm. which is tough. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you own your customer and they come directly to your website and you can make all the margin, that's, that's definitely the way to go. Hmm. But I do think, you know, for him, the strategy is obviously to get local businesses, build the brand through some local stores. So people even know you exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and there's an interesting, you know, vibe of being from a beach town, being a young kid in a beach town, you know, a lot of people around the rest of the country probably like that story. Well, maybe yep. that would work for him. Yep. All right. And so then after that. Yeah. So after that, you know, I did that for um, 10 years, probably. I, I ended after 2008. I mean, that whole business changed you know, with that, with the recession, you know, big companies like Ralph Lauren started buying retail space as a way for them to offset their costs. They would literally rent somebody like Ralph Lauren space in their store so they could cover their rent costs. And uh, so they would take giant parts of the showroom floor and they would leave the little guy on a little twirler on the back, you know? So you just, you just, it was just impossible and they wouldn't take risks on smaller brands because they wouldn't have the, you know, the kind of flow through with the product. So I went and worked for somebody uh, to try and build a men's brand that ultimately didn't work out, got married and we had our first kid on the way and I'm lost my job and I got nothing, you know? Mm. Um, So that, that really was the impetus for sidecar that kind of being in a, a predicament where you had to make something happen and you had to be creative and, and use the skills you had to try and make something new. And I was really into coffee and I actually went to a coffee school down in San Diego and a guy there had one of these, uh, it's, it's a bell shawl, little mini donut machine and it drops the donut and it, you know, it's like into a whole oil. show. Yeah. yeah and it like goes little... down the thing. Oh yeah. That's so out. cool. Oh, I love those. And people were, people were crazy for it. And it just was like, wow. I mean, donuts are, it's a special, it's kind of like ice cream or any dessert. There's kind of a special, but it has an even more unique element to it. I think it's very American. It's a part of American kind of culture, like a hamburger. So I started doing some research after sitting for this guy for like six days in a row for lunch. And he's telling me, how he's going around doing these private parties with this donut machine. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. So I did some research and these, there are a couple of places on the East coast, uh, donut vault in New York, uh, donut vaults in Chicago, actually donut plant in New York. There was just some East coast brands that were doing upscale product. They were doing really well. At least it looked like it. They had lines. And so my wife, had a friend that she had tried some restaurant concepts with. It was a, a chef. And I just said, I think, I think we should, you know, coffee alone didn't seem that promising. There was Stumptown. This was a big third wave movement, Stumptown, 
Four Barrel, all these kind of San Francisco, Seattle brands were already kind of owning that space. Mm-hmm. And I thought by the time I learned to roast as good as they do and open up, the trend will have passed me by. So I need to implement something with it. Like what's the perfect complement to coffee? And it was donuts. It's the original match made in heaven, right? Yeah. So well, and I remember if I may hop in here. So yeah. I'm going to back up a little bit and how I met you was my husband and I, Graham and I got married and we decided to go to Fiji on a surf honeymoon because I'm yes. such an amazing wife. I thought if I do that, I'll get brownie points the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so it's a tiny island in Fiji called Namotu. It hosts, I don't know, fits what, 16, 18 yeah. people. And we just had a bunch of our friends and you were part of the friend group because my husband went to college and subsequently lived in Argentina with your stepbrother. Yep. And so that was the first time I met you. And that's when you were running EFCI. And I thought, oh my gosh, this kid is so creative and he's so interesting. I mean, you play the guitar and you sing and you, you know, you're just doing all these in my business world, what seemed to be very incongruent with what most of my other friends were doing. And so cut to when you were married and you came to our house and you're playing guitar and you're talking about starting (laughs) a donut shop and we're like, uh, Hey, something, we don't, we don't think that's a really good idea. Like we're not really sure you want to put your life savings into that whole deal. So I was not a believer and I apologize now because Hmm. what you've done since is incredible. So tell me about Sidecar Donut. And also subsequent to that, I've been to all the amazing places in New York City because every time I go, I also have another like donut connoisseur buddy who um, lived in New York. He was a Broadway guy and he loves donuts. And so we would just ride those city bikes around and go check out all the different shops. Yeah, but I think you guys no one holds a candle to Sidecar Donut. So I want to understand what is it that led you to it? What the name, the branding, I mean, it was so special and actually how you rolled it out was also really unique. So walk me through that process. Yeah. You know, we started the first, you know, kind of thing we started on was uh, getting some recipes and funny story is we had a yeast recipe, you know, there are two types of donuts. There's yeast, which you think of as it's a brioche. Ours is a brioche with a light and fluffy. That's the Krispy Kreme version of a donut. Then there's cake, which is the more dense cupcakey type. We do most of our sales in cake. Uh, and I, that's really our specialty. That's, that's what we do better than everybody else. The small batches, fresh, all times of the day is what makes it so special. But we actually were looking, all right, every other donut shop is doing a bag mix. They're, they're, they're buying a product like a Betty Crocker, think of Betty Crocker, add water, put it in a hopper and throw it in the, you know, it's, it's a very simple process. And it's in there. And then in the, the company that actually sells it said, you know, this thing can sit on the shelf for 24 hours. It'll, it'll be just as fresh. And I thought that is the exact opposite of what I'm going for. So when I thought about it, you know, really it was, there are three, there were three prongs that really, I I wanted to do better design. You know, I'm come from a design background. My mom's a designer. I knew I could create space that made people feel special. I think it's a very underestimated 
part of any restaurant or anything. I think people totally agree. miss on that. I, there's some intangibility with the way things feel that people disregard a lot in order to make cheaper stores, bottom line, you know, mm. to achieve economies of scale, they sacrifice things. And I think, so we didn't want to do that. We wanted to make really high-end spaces that met what third wave coffee shops were doing at the time. I think Four Barrel and all these guys in San Francisco were making really cool spaces. And so we wanted to achieve that. I thought we could do that. I thought our service, most donut shops, I mean, bottom line, it's mom and pop. You go in there, there there's no great service. It's kind of get in and get out. Same with the design. The faster you get in, the faster you get out, the better. So we get superior service. And then our, our product would just be top, top quality. Like we would make everything in-house, everything made from scratch, no bag mixes, no nothing, no shelf. One of our things was no shelf life. So that's why the, the you know, frying small batches all day long. We just knew, because when we started, I had a, a art space, like you talked about as an artist, and I converted that into a kitchen. We started testing our recipes in Costa Mesa, about a mile away from the first shop on, on 17th street. We had a little 500 square foot space turned into a kitchen. My wife said, you know, we're throwing away a bunch of donuts every day as we test to try and scale recipes. Why don't we invite friends mm -hmm. to come have them on Saturday and we'll just serve coffee and they can eat them. And I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. So we started doing that. We, the first time, I think we had six people there, but they loved it. Second time, 20 we, we couldn't get time. in we couldn't get in yeah. it grew it grew and we found out quickly that the, we'd bring them out on a tray and they'd be piping hot because they're just you know we weren't good enough at making them and people just you know went crazy crazy over mm. this idea of hot fresh donuts and i think from that testing and we gave them away free for probably three or four months that really showed us we had some we, we, we had captured something. There was a, a small area in the market that we had satisfied, you know, and. Uh, yeah, well, and you created this underground vibe and this underground brand. I mean, people were dying for the cigarette. <laughs> I know. It's, and, you know, that's branding. I think a lot of clothing has a lot of big branding element, mm -hmm. right? I, I think that helped me transition to brand a, this you know i think i use some of that i those ideas that yeah sometimes restaurants don't really think about it's kind of the last thing they think about it was one of the first thing i thought about because that's just where i came from was what the logo looks like what the space looks like how do we market what should we have the pictures look like my wife was a photographer so that helped she was yeah. taking pictures and you know the first week or second week is people showing up in like their night closed the fourth week it was like they put on their their dress in the nines because they knew they were going to be photographed and put on the internet and we got really lucky instagram had just started it was 2011 2012 and instagram was really launching they started following us mm -hmm. they were looking for brands that obviously were losing their using their platform to promote their business that was a huge catalyst. I mean, we went from something like a hundred followers to 20,000 and, you know, six, you know, two weeks. So that was huge. That helped us get even a bigger footprint, more notoriety. Yeah. And where did you come up with the name sidecar? We did a tasting and my stepdad, we were trying this concept because most donut shops offer a donut hole with your order. Like they just give you one. And so 
we were thinking about that. So we gave him a, gave him a donut and we put the donut hole kind of on top. So if you turned it on its side, it would be like a little donut with a big donut. <laughs> he's like, oh, that's like a sidecar to the donut. And we were originally thinking that's just what we're going to call that particular donut idea. But as I thought about it more and I played with the name and drew the logo, I just went with it. I remember you had a really cool old maroon color truck with the sidecar logo on the side and you would drive around town. Tell me about that. That whole idea was started doing some history of donuts in California. Or one of the most vivid memories for a lot of young people growing up in Southern California in LA was the the donut truck that the Helms Bakery truck that came through the towns like almost like an ice cream truck yeah uh, every day and it'd ring a bell and then the guy would walk out and there were these four foot long drawers that they had pulled donuts from out the oh back of the truck oh, so, I didn't know the history of that that's really cool so you brought a ton of history and heritage into into your brand yeah you know I think that that spoke to the idea of making handmade from scratch real ingredients it was like that that idea of hearkening back to a time when that was all you could do that that was just what you did you made you made real things you didn't use (laughs) a bunch of preservatives to make it last on the shelf for hours it was just there just wasn't that option And And so I remember when you finally opened, it was like literally, and still to this day, all these years later, there is anytime I drive by, there's a line out the door. And I remember you saying like, oh my gosh, we're, we close at noon. And I'm thinking (laughs) you're missing huge opportunity. And the other night I was actually just near there. I was at that Italian restaurant in that same shopping center. And I think you guys are now open till nine o'clock at night at least. Yeah. yeah, we we quickly changed it. We, you know, a lot of people were doing till sold out, right? That was kind of the thing. So you if you made them fresh and all morning. that, like you just could only make a certain amount and we'll go to a sold out. So we tried that and people were not having it. And so we had to quickly pivot. That was part of understanding operationally what how to undertake the idea of making that is our moat. I mean, that's what separates us from every other brand. And that's what makes us hard to compete with is create is that idea and creating the volume that can sustain that much labor. I mean, the average donut shop probably has five employees, you know, mm-hmm. three at any time. We have 50. So wow. per the payroll shop. is yes. The payroll and how many is shops different. do you have? There are five with six open and six Manhattan Beach was the six which will open uh September one. Okay. So we have run through all of them. We have Costa Mesa. Santa Monica. Yeah, those are the first two. Then we opened Del Mar in San Diego. And then uh, we went up to Torrance. And then we went to third in Fairfax at the Grove. Oh, wow. So then we have Manhattan Beach. And then we have we, we have uh, Culver City, which is in construction. Wow. So you have a huge payroll. Yes. Wow. Okay. A lot of people. I mean, we yeah. are. I, I like to say now we're, we're in the people business. I mean, yeah. we've we're really in the people business. We're only as good as the people we have and mm-hmm. can train. And, you know, that that's kind of what we've transformed into. Because uh, every day they're the ones delivering on our promises. And so. 
Yeah. yeah. That's, That's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. All right. So now we're going to hop into sort of the typical questions that I ask my guests, because now that we have an understanding of what your business is and how you got there and what a amazing visionary you were and how you just didn't listen to the people who kept who were the total naysayers what's the one thing you do every single day before you can get your day started is there something maybe it's coffee i don't know i'm assuming oh, de definitely coffee I, okay is coffee there something is a else must. i go through different phases but coffee is remains a consistent throughout it all uh i have to work out and i have to have coffee i used to meditate quite a bit i'm sadly i've after a seven-year stint of being pretty religious about it i've kind of gone off but coffee has remained with me okay and working out those are two things that i i don't go through a day without having oh that's good yeah that's good and do you work out in the morning or at night or whenever you can get it in usually at, usually five o'clock in the afternoon okay. um, i'm most productive in the morning so i i don't want to waste it working out yeah. So I like to get all the stuff done in the morning and work out in the evening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's something about the sense of accomplishment from like a physical activity that makes me feel like I can rest. You know? mm. It's interesting. Yeah, I'm a morning. I have to work out in the morning. Otherwise, like I, I just can't after school and with all the sports and stuff with the kids, it's just, I can't get anything done in the afternoon. So yeah. I have to get it done in the morning. And when I was working and commuting up to Beverly Hills, I would actually go to the gym at five in the morning. I would bail, get on the road by six. I mean, and it would take me, you know, two hours to get up to LA. It was brutal. Wow. But I, I needed to do that for myself. So yeah. What would you say has been the inflection point in the career? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, I've grown, you know, I think each point plays on the other, but I think the big inflection point is having actually coming upon an idea that had staying power, right? I mean, as a serial entrepreneur, kind of somebody who works best creating their own ideas and that freedom piece, I, I'm not a great employee, you know, but <laughs> I think creating, finally coming upon an idea that really does have staying power it's just not easy. I mean, I think people who started business, it's not, you, you fail. It's like investments. You fail 90% or 99% of the time to come upon the one that actually takes off. And so finally finding one and solving, you know, one of the a problem that existed in the market and filling that kind of void. And then from there, all the growth potentials by, by growing teams and really learning to lead all happened from, you know, one idea really taking off. So I, I kind of think of that as an inflection point for me. Okay. And what would you say has been your biggest challenge that you've experienced as an entrepreneur? It's definitely patience. I, it's so hard. You, you know, you, you, you just want to grow faster. You want to come to the end quicker. You want the payoff faster, you know, all of those things. You, you just really trying to uh, enjoy the journey more than to pay off at the end. And hmm. I think that's, that's been the hardest part, you know, because, you know, brands, there's, there's a lot of ways for brands to grow quickly. You could franchise, right. I could, I could go tomorrow and start selling tons of franchises. I can make a lot of money quickly, but you would ruin. I mean, not everybody ruins, but I, I feel like it's a path, it's a quick path to ruin it because you just, you just sacrifice so much. You can lose brand integrity. So 
the remaining patient, hmm. uh, building it one step at a time, getting stronger, more resilient as the company uh, as it grows, and being patient with the results is, I think, I think is the biggest challenge because it's so easy to not do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people take that other route and they lose, they lose kind of some of the integrity of the business as a result. Yeah, I think especially what it is that you're doing is so specialized and so unique that I can imagine that would be scary to give up that control. You know, very similar to, well, not really. I mean, In-N-Out Burger, they have no franchises, but they, they have a very simple menu and they're, you know, it's so good and it's so consistent. Oh, yeah. And so I, I they're feel best like, in cla- you know, they're what best in class Chick-fil-A, both of them, neither of them are franchised. Hmm. Um, you know, in and out still family owned, they grow, they only have 300 and something stores and they've really only done the West coast. They had the, I mean, imagine the amount of people that have called them. Why don't we take it to right. Saudi Arabia and just, the East coast and they've with, they just stuck to what they do, all the ideas they probably had to add to their menu that they've never done. Mm-hmm. Those are my two in, in the Hillstone group. You know, I work for yeah. Houston's still family owned with 50 some odd restaurants. There's. I was going to say your model definitely reminds me of theirs as well, where the customer service is so good. The food quality is so great. And they're not a franchise. Chick-fil-A, I believe, is franchise, no? You, you, it's a kind of a um, operator agreement. It's oh, not okay. a straight franchise. You, they pick certain people to own stores, and you can own okay. one. Some people can own two, but they do kind of a profit split. Hmm. They build a store for you. They put up the capital. Then you split the profits. So you don't buy, like, you know, Southern California and build your own Chick-fil-A's. Hmm. So well, and their, I think one of their main operating statements is that their goal is to make their operators happy. It's not the end yeah. customer. It's to make their operator happy because if their operator is happy and has everything he or she needs, then that flows down to the staff and then ultimately to the customer. Those are the two best in what yeah. I, in that fast casual space. Canes has done really well too. Mm. Uh, I don't know as much about them, but yeah, their food quality is really good. Yeah, so really good. We're just trying to get there someday. What would you consider a flop or failure? Something that's taught you an important lesson? I don't know. I I feel like in clothing there are some failures or flops. It wasn't overly successful necessarily, but there's so much gleaned from those experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, despite not really being overly successful they were successful in the small ways that they were overall they didn't ever really take off but there was so much to learn from it as far as just I don't know I think what I take from most of it is that you've got to keep trying and you know you just keep having ideas and you keep getting up despite being pushed down you know that's my biggest thing yeah is realizing that not all ideas are are at the right time you know and all that stuff and it's not easy to make it on you know through as an entrepreneur, but you just got to get up and keep trying. I, yeah. That's kind of what yeah. I got the most from it. What's the boldest thing you've ever said to someone, whether it's a colleague, a boss, a partner, you know, going into the, you know, we had a little bit where we wanted to bring on a partner. Right. And I think we put our foot in the sand and said, we really need to have this person come on. And that caused quite a bit of turmoil. 
And I think that was the boldest move, one of the bolder moves we've had. I mean, to make that decision to say, despite one person not wanting to go that direction, we were going to go. And despite what the consequences were, it ultimately, I think in the end, I hope it turned out for best for everybody, but it led down a long path of two years of fighting to ultimately get to the end of it. But I think that was the boldest move I've done. You know, mm-hmm. I, despite what you knew was probably going to happen to just keep going, just go, I feel like the, I've got to do this. Right, right. To move forward. We need uh, somebody to, to help us navigate to get to the top. And we had somebody willing to do it. And so I have heard a lot of entrepreneurs and even just real estate investors say, as they get older, I will never have a partner again. Do you feel yeah. that way? No. I don't, you know, I think partners are very tough, but I have a partner now that is great. I went through a partner that wasn't, you know, that turned out that it was, it didn't work out. Um, And despite trying to do your best to make it work, it just didn't. So it's kind of like a marriage, you know, It, it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of communication and to make it work and it doesn't always work out, but I'm not sure that makes all partners bad, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it is difficult, but at the same time, what it gives you is somebody to help you maintain that like fire to keep going when you're Mm kind of down and you feel lonely, like, Oh, where do I go from here? There's another voice yeah, and there's somebody to pick you up when you're not feeling and vice versa. Oftentimes in a strategic partnership, they have a talent or a skill that I don't have and we can leverage the two. And I think that's what happens in our current partnership. You have somebody that's very skilled in operations and leading at a high level. And you have somebody creative who's trying to learn some of those skills. He's like a mentor for me as well. Hmm. Uh, So that's super helpful. And, uh, you know, we, we work well together as a team. So, yeah. Well, and I think as long as you go into a partnership with the understanding of this is what it's going to look like if we start bickering, right? Like, you know, how you're either going to buy each other out or how those things will get resolved. You talk about, it's almost like a prenuptial agreement. You talk about that stuff up front rather than when you're, you know, throwing dishes at each other. Yeah, no, that's very important, right? To have it in everything and in writing and discussed and how things will go. Yeah. Um, for sure. So you've done a ton of research. You started, you started out all of this by doing a ton of research on donut companies and donut shops around the yeah. country, probably internationally. You now have a couple of hundred people under, you know, working for the business. You probably meet a ton of people um, across, mm-hmm. you know, the country. What's the biggest leadership miss you see regularly? I see, you know, we have a lot of, you know, obviously GMs and managers that work for us, at least we're training them and stuff like that all the time. And these are mostly new leaders, but the things I mostly see people put off hard decisions quite a bit. They have trouble having hard conversations and they put it off. They either, they may second guess themselves. They know what the right thing to do is, but then they don't do it because it might be a little difficult. Uh, They lack some clear, clear communication about what their standards are and where they expect people to be. Right. I think I see that quite a bit where they lack a little bit of clarity of vision. 
and mm. how they communicate it to their teams so they can all get on board and go in the same direction. And then when they don't do that properly, they micromanage, right? And they, people don't want to be micromanaged <laughs> mostly. So <laughs> you mean you they, don't, <laughs> yeah, they don't, you know, usually it all lead, you know, they, they don't set a clear expectation or a clear vision. And then when people don't follow it, they get frustrated, they micromanage. Right. And it, it kind of is its own little cycle. So I, and so I, how, how do you coach people through that then? The biggest thing I try and, and, and tell them is really be clear, you know, at the very beginning, you know, you make clear expectations. You have to follow up a little bit consistently to make sure they understand clearly what you're trying to get across. And once you feel good about them, that they understand what you're trying to do, that you can just let them go. You know, a lot, oftentimes they'll, they'll direct somebody to do something it won't get done. Then they'll get frustrated. And, you know, they're like, this person is no good, <laughs> you know, some stuff like that. And it's like, well, do they, did they understand exactly what you really wanted and why, why you want it that way. And when that gets cleared up, oftentimes people do get on board and, and will do naturally what you want them to do without having to micromanage them. Mm-hmm. It's not, leadership's not easy. And, you know, there's always the five leadership, you know, we've gone over those, John, Maxwell, we do do some of that. Yeah. So you have like a formal training program then for your team. Yeah, we do, we do go over that, you know, and try and teach them how to be leaders. You know, that's our main, obviously I said we're in the people business and yeah. the whole goal, the way we, only way we can grow is to create leaders and to create people who can run shops and run them efficiently. Our whole goal is to create people who can do that and then have them, once they're leading shops, grow leaders within their own shops. Yeah. Those people go out and run the stores and we can only grow as fast as they can create talent is basically. And so is there a particular quality you look for in a candidate when you're hiring them? A lot of it's attitude for us. It's, it's a positive smiling attitude because a lot of the other stuff you can teach about how to do things, but you can't really teach some of those intangibles about friendliness. Are they willing to learn? Are they kind of hungry to mm-hmm. learn? We have this hum- like humble, hungry, and aware kind of thing where we humble just, we find that people who are, are humble or they're willing to learn kind of is what that's trying to get at. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like they know everything. Every time you give them constructive feedback, they're willing to take it. They're not like deflecting and, but, you know, making excuses. Hungry is just like, you know, obviously that's what that is, what it is. Are they really passionate about it? And it, will they put in the time mm-hmm. to get there? And then mindful is more just understanding their aware, their surroundings. Um, are they aware of themselves and how they portray themselves to their team if they come in upset or mad? And then are they aware of how they're, um, or are they mindful of how their team is? And it, can they read that and be able to uh, get the best out of people? You know, if somebody comes in upset, can they help them redirect that or uh, get them to perform at a high level despite that, stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there have been a ton of articles saying that you know, restaurants are having a really hard time keeping people employed. Are you finding the same? Oh God. Yes. Yeah. It's good. This is as bad as it's been, you know, in a long time, but people obviously they're being paid to stay home. That's one problem. 
so it's really difficult for them to to want to have motivation to really come to work other people are scared right and especially in this in kind of hospitality where you are closer to people and there's well, lots of people coming in from off the street you know it's mm-hmm. not as a controlled environment there are tighter spaces if you're in the kitchen so people are nervous there's part partly that too and then people have picked up and left you know people are moving out of california into <laughs> texas or you know people are moving around they've taken the opportunity to say like okay i don't want to live here anymore i'm going to move over there and so there's this kind of total reshuffling of everything it feels like it's just been very difficult to to keep fully staffed and not lose people the turnover is just insane i would imagine that's really challenging now that's the hardest part you know right i mean if you turn people over you're dead because you're always what it costs to train somebody and get somebody up to speed is very expensive Mm -hmm. and then if you're running a store with a bunch of new people products you know all the service falls off the product falls off everything as you know you go to a place one time and you could go there 50 times and it's all great. You get no credit. You go there once and it's bad. You don't go for another month. Mm-hmm. You do it again. You don't go for a year. You do it again. You may not come back. Right. So you don't get rewarded for greatness. You, <laughs> you really yeah. just get dinged for bad experiences. <laughs> yeah. Oh and, man. Uh, so that's the challenge and great, great companies figured out how to do it. You know, they figure out how to be very consistent with that. And it's difficult when you're turning people over. Yeah. And you know, a restaurant, right? When you, you get, and you get bad service, you could probably ask the person, you got a bunch of new staff. They'll say, yeah, you know, or so, you know, it's typical. You feel like everyone's going through that right now. Very much. I've been to three or four restaurants in the last week where they've expressed that. Yeah. Just hard yeah. to find people really hard. So what advice do you have for your 30 year old self? You were probably 30 when we went on, when we, spent our honeymoon with you when you honeymooned with us <laughs> invest more money in google facebook <laughs> tesla apple for me i think to tell somebody at that age to to definitely find something they're passionate about i think to be successful is a long you know it takes a lot of effort and a lot of hours to be really good at anything mm-hmm. right and it takes a lot of hard knocks. And if you're not passionate, you'll fall off too quickly to make Mm -hmm. it to the end, right? There's just something about that passion that gets you through all the tough stuff without the pain and the grind. And if you're not passionate, you just won't make it to the end. We have, you know, 20 year old now. And just, I I think about what to tell her. (laughs) Life's hard, super competitive. I mean, she, not only now are you competing against, you're competing against the world. MIT has like an open course there. You can take college classes. And uh, I was watching one and I, they go around and ask people in the class to answer questions. I didn't recognize one name. I mean, there was maybe one guy that was from the United States. So it's a global, we live in a global community and you're competing against the best of the best all over the world. And it's not easy. I feel like it takes a lot of uh, fortitude and, it, and that's what you get with passion. If you're passionate about something, you just, you just keep going. You don't look back because it's just like what you love. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what will get you through. So to find, keep finding stuff that you're passionate about and keep, keep on the journey, I guess, mm-hmm. what I would say. Yeah. What's something you've learned from a mentor? It sounds like your partner is one of your mentors that has really stuck with you. 
Yeah. The biggest thing I learned from him is he's been a high level leader. I mean, he was a CEO of Burger King. He, you know, chief operating officer for Taco Bell. I mean, this is somebody who's done it at a high level. I think watching him handle just the situations that come out day to day, right? How do, how do you handle each of these situations? Um, how do you make these decisions? How do you have the tough conversations? I think that's the big one, right? Is how do you have tough conversations? Because it's just not easy. You, mm. you don't want to have them, but how do you make yourself have them? Ultimately, you've got to clear the air and move forward. And if you don't do it or you you put it off, like I was saying before, it stays in and it, it just it gets worse. Right. Especially in the stores, right? One bad, you don't have that conversation and they get disgruntled. They just, they, they're toxic. And you haven't given, you haven't been able to have that conversation because you keep putting it off and they're mm. just, they're telling every employee why this place sucks. Mm, right. Interesting. Every day they're like, God, you know, and it's, it's like something that you did that could be cleared up, could have been cleared up, but right. instead they get, they stew on it and stew on it. And then they tell everybody around them why the business is, why sidecars sucks and why they, you know, they're dishonest or they don't fulfill any of what they say, you know, all that type stuff. It starts to ruin the culture. Yeah. So I think learning how to have those conversations and have them quickly is one thing he's really, he's good at. He's not afraid of conflict. He's not afraid to have that and just get it off. You know, let's just get that done. Yeah. And let's get it done now. So it doesn't hurt us. Well, so. that's a good skill for a parent of many children. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no question. It doesn't come as natural for me. You know, I'm not as uh, confrontational. Uh, so it's something that I've had to learn and get better at. And yeah. once you see the need for it, you, you just think, oh, I just got to do this. This is not yeah. going to be fun, but I got to do yeah. it. Yeah, that's a really, really good one. What advice do you have for someone looking to start their own business? Yeah, like I said, the passionate piece is a big one. I think the road's long and, and there's going to be bumps and bruises and you're going to fail many times before you reach success. And I think having something you're passionate about is one important piece, but also testing your idea to the market, right? We had those tastings, like if nobody showed up, I mean, you might want to pivot, <laughs> <laughs> right? I, well, so, and, and it's also like having those tough conversations with yourself early. So you try a product, it doesn't work. All right, let's cut the losses before it's too, too much, yes. right? Unbearable. Yes. Yeah. Like for him, starting a clothing company and stuff, it's just it's low barrier to entry. Anybody can do it. What's what separates your product from everybody else's and get realistic about it, hmm. you know, not be like, oh, I can just start any old thing. Yeah. But there are always those exceptions like you, Ruka, Pat with Ruka I means out there hucking shirts and it turned into Ruka. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. There's no perfect answer, but you got to be passionate. Like you said, early on, uh, be able to evaluate do you really have something that is of value and is really needed? And yeah. you're seeing that reflected to you by the people who are using it or buying it. All right. We're going to head into the virtual insanity rapid fire. You ready? Favorite leadership or business book? I think it's called turn the ship around. You heard of that one? No, it's, it's really good. I, he's a captain of a submarine and it's about him turning that ship he's he obviously becomes kind of the captain of the lowest performing ship and it's how he turned it around favorite pastime i love surfing if you had an entire day with zero meetings what would you do 
I do something like serve and then learn. I'm, I'm always trying to learn something. So okay. I'd read something, try and figure yeah. out whatever I'm passionate about at the time. <laughs> and so what's on the nightstand right now? I'm reading a lot of Austrian economics, surprisingly Austrian. enough. Austrian economics. Tell me more. Yeah, I, I think I've invested in Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has a lot of its fundamentals in Austrian economics. Should understand what money is, what all of those kind of questions around the philosophies of money and of value. There's obviously two, you know, there's Keynesian and there's really Austrian economics. And I kind of fall in that Austrian economics bucket. So I've been doing some research on that and reading about it. It's fascinating. Right. I was a philosophy major, but this is kind of the philosophy of money yeah. right? and value. So, so it's pretty interesting. Favorite vacation spot? Nomotu. Yeah, right on. Yeah. And then a favorite quote. Are you planning on going anytime soon? I wish. I We should actually plan a trip. I, yeah. I'd love to take the kids or even go by myself. Well, that's it. Thank you so much. I hope you had a good time. No, it's awesome. I love doing this. It's such a fun process to think about these things and articulate them because you know you do things but you don't realize sometimes what you're doing until you reflect on okay that's why I did that <laughs> well and it's been a long journey and you've been hyper successful maybe not enough time to really stop and reflect and what I love about these interviews is the storytelling involved and how your kids and your, you know, grandkids will be able to look back and listen on this and say, Oh, that's what dad did. And that's why he did that. And, you know, even as a good friend, I didn't even know, I knew that Craig had something to do with the name, but like, I didn't know why. And that makes so yeah. much sense. Right. Yeah. It is so, cool. Well, thank you. You're a big part of our lives and we love having you guys around and glad to be able to see you guys more and especially your, your daughters and just watching them grow up so much fun, especially the third one who reminds me of myself so much. Yeah, she's a, you guys are twins. <laughs> really. It's pretty funny. When I think of her now, I think of you. I just, <laughs> yeah, we love you guys and look forward to spending, trying to spend more time. I mean, we live so yeah. close and we don't get to yeah as much as we should i know for sure thank you so much and thank you for everyone for tuning in to this amazing episode of mentor dna with the founder of sidecar donuts sumter pendergrast thank you thank you this is the mentor dna podcast and i appreciate you tuning in please visit mentordna.io for more info on my friends and musings i have from our conversations Stay tuned for another great episode next week. Talk to you soon. Amor Boutique Hotel is a special place my family and friends love to visit in Sayulita, Mexico. A quick and safe 35-minute shuttle from Puerto Vallarta, and you're on the beach enjoying the most quaint and uniquely designed resort. The first minute I walk into our villa and take in the gorgeous decor featuring antique wooden doors and windows, Turkish lamps, and artisan-crafted mosaic floors and ceilings, I immediately feel myself relax to take in Amour Boutique's beauty. This hidden spot has drawn surfers, deep sea, and spearfishing lovers for decades. The expansive ocean views and five-minute walk into town for an authentic Mexican village filled with exquisite foods and shopping make it really hard to leave. Visit AmourBoutiqueHotel.com and tell them Mentor DNA sent ya.